0: to learn more about careers in psychiatry, join the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatry, RANDCP's, Psychiatry Interest Forum to access a range of free member benefits, including educational and networking opportunities, and to explore the diversity of careers available within psychiatry. PSI has received Australian government funding administered by the RANDCP under the Psychiatry Workforce Program to support this podcast. Now let's get started with the third episode of our podcast. I'm Anna and welcome to another episode of The Freudian Slip brought to you by PSI. Today we will be touching on Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, also known as ARFID. It is a newly termed eating disorder diagnosis in the DSM-5, which was published in 2013. I personally hadn't come across it until my adolescent health rotation at the Royal Children's Hospital and I believe it also wasn't covered in our mental health terms so I thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss. Today we are joined by Dr Claire Burden who is a clinical psychologist. She's worked in a variety of paediatric mental health settings for 15 years and has specialised in paediatric eating disorders for approximately 10 years. She has worked in the Royal Children's Hospital's Eating Disorder Unit service and currently works in the RCH Psychology Service, where she provides specialised ARFID treatment. Claire is passionate about developing an evidence base for the treatment of ARFID and about increasing accessibility to high-quality care. Welcome, Claire, to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Anna.
0: Um, As I said, a lot of people may not be familiar with ARFID, so I thought we would start with a definition. What is ARFID?
1: I'm not surprised. A lot of you aren't familiar because it's pretty new to the DSN. Um, And basically what it is, it's a persistent problem with feeding or eating um, that's associated with inadequate nutrition and is also associated with one of the following. So these are all ors, substantial weight loss or failure to gain weight or a nutritional deficiency or a dependence on an NGT tube or oral supplements, or there's a marked interference with psychosocial functioning. So it's a bit different to say AN and BN where say an AN, they have to be underweight. So for ARFID, they don't have to be underweight. They don't even have to have a nutritional deficiency. It could be that eating is really getting in the way of their social development and they might still meet criteria.
0: So just to clarify, A-N being anorexia nervosa yes, and B-N and and being bulimia nervosa. Yeah, yeah. And are there subcategories in this diagnosis?
1: Yeah, so again, because it's only it's been, been defined since DSM-5, so it's been around for a really long time, but we've only had um, a fairly good definition for it since DSM-5. We don't know heaps, but the literature at the moment is suggesting that there are three major dimensions. So with three groups, so one who's not eating because there's some kind of sensory food aversion, um, so they may eat a very restricted type of food, so it might be the colour or the texture of the food, so they might be avoiding crunchy food, um, only eating white foods. Then there's another group that's just not very interested in eating, so they get, they're not very hungry or they get full really quickly and they can just go all day and not really think about food, don't have a drive to eat. And then there's the other group that has a fear of something bad happening after they eat. So they call it fear of aversive consequences. So it might be someone who's had bad gastro and then after that they've been worried that they're going to vomit again and so they restrict their eating or they may have had an anaphylactic event or sometimes you might see it with kids with gastro problems so that have experience some pain in their tummy and they're trying to um, manage that pain and they manage that by reducing their eating and it becomes such, you know, might start to pose
0: a nutritional or a weight problem for them. So it sounds like it encompasses a spectrum of symptoms and presentations. Can you talk more about the typical age of presentation and what you have seen in your clinical experience?
1: Sure. So compared to anorexia and bulimia, it tends to be younger. So Alfred's um, a reformulation of an old diagnosis called feeding or eating disorder in infancy and childhood, which so that's back in dsm 4 And so it was these kids who were avoiding eating, not because they wanted to lose weight or they're worried about their body weight or shape, but for some other reason, but it needed to be for kids under six. So Alfred's got rid of that criteria here. So they do tend to be younger. And they tend to be, um, so there's that aversive consequences group. So they may have had a period of kind of eating well and then something happened and freaked them out and then they start eating less. But a lot of these you'll see difficulties eating across their whole lifespan.
0: And what about prevalence perhaps in the Australian population or elsewhere in the world?
1: Yeah. So again, the data is not great on it. And a lot of what we've looked at has come out of studies from restrictive eating sort of clinics that don't often include ARFID. Um, And there's not many population studies. There was one in Australia that's estimated the population prevalence to be about 0.3%, but they only surveyed people over the age of 15 years. Um, Then there's another one in a Swiss community sample, and their sample was 8 to 13-year-olds, and they had it about 3.2%. I think it's quite underrecognized. so not quite sure how many they are, but the Swiss sample is probably a more accurate representation of how common it is.
0: So more cohort studies, I guess, are needed in this area, or more research in general. Yeah. In terms of risk factors, a lot of the times we are considering the risk factors for medical conditions or mental health conditions. What are the risk factors to developing ARFID?
1: So this isn't coming from any research base or like clear, you know, we just don't have that yet. So I'm going to just talking more from my clinical experience um, and, and a broad reading of the literature. They do tend to be more anxious. So they have high, quite high rates of anxiety and this comorbid anxiety. If they've got sensory sensitivities, they're probably at greater risk. If they've had a disrupted kind of early feeding history. So we've seen a few young people who have been born with cardiac problems and then they've been too weak to feed in their early years of life. Um, and may have gone on to an NGT or a PEG at a very young age and just not needed to eat, and it somehow disrupted their development of normalised eating. Yeah, so we're still learning a lot about it as well. So, And then if there's been some big event, like if there's been a major gastro or a major anaphylactic event, then that would be another risk factor.
0: So you've alluded to some mental health comorbidities and also medical comorbidities. Could you expand more on what are the ones that are commonly associated with ARFID?
1: Yes. So ASD is commonly associated with, and again, we need to do more research on this. But if you think about the diagnostic criteria and the kind of the profile for ASD, these are young people who often have sensory sensitivities. And having a sensory sensitivity does put you at a greater risk of having a feeding problem. So that's like kind of a double whammy for them. Um, so again, anxiety disorders um, and medical conditions such as a gastro condition or a cardiac condition where early feeding has been disrupted. Um, you might also find mood, you might find a comorbid mood, don't particularly if they're underweight. So that kind of starvation. Syndrome, and then we see I don't, There's not heaps of data on OCD, but you might see some kind of obsessiveness around it too. But again, that can come up as a part of starvation as well.
0: Mm. Um, you've mentioned ASD. I've noticed that it came up a lot. Um, those with um, autism spectrum disorder also had a eating or eating problem. Could you expand more on that? Um, because I'm interested in how it presents and how they interact with each other.
1: Sure. So the um, ASD population are at risk of a feeding or eating disorder, like full stop, um, with estimates for this population ranging from 46 to 89% in some studies. Uh, and regardless of who we compare the ASD group to, they're at higher risk of having some kind of sort disorder, including other groups with developmental delay. And often you'll see people with ASD may have some fussy eating habits or rigid eating habits, like only wanting to see, eat certain foods or eat foods presented in certain ways. Um, so I think if the, the young person has ASD and they're eating from all of the food groups and they're growing okay, and they're getting the nutrition they need, but they're rigid and fussy about it, we probably wouldn't say that they had offered. It was more just kind of part of their ASD. But if it is really interfering with their nutrition, like so if their food intake is so limited that they're not getting the nutrition they need, if you're seeing that kind of fussiness with someone with ASD, they're unlikely to grow out of it and we need to intervene quite early.
0: Um, Moving on to assessment, what specific questions on history would you ask to assess patients?
1: So I would do just a general normal mental health assessment, like a standard mental health assessment. So finding out about developmental history, family mental health and medical history, school functioning, any kind of developmental comorbidity. So I would be looking to see if there was ASD in the mix. Uh, And then I would be zooming in a bit more to get an understanding of their eating history across the lifespan. So have they always been fussy? Have they always been rigid? um, Or has it been that they were eating normally and there was there was an event that occurred that's changed the way they eat. I'd be looking at the range of foods that they eat as well as the volume of foods that they eat. Um, I would also be just asking about their chewing and their swallowing and um, any sensory issues. And I might, if, if I had one available, I might um, get a speech path to assess or an OT to assess some of that. If we thought that was a problem i would be looking at their height and weight to see if they were tracking on their centiles or if they were looking much shorter than their parents so if they weren't kind of as tall as we'd expect them to be Um, and another thing that i'd be really interested in is how the family um, and the the carers are responding to their eating so are they challenging it do they accommodate it So some families get really angry and frustrated, whereas others are just desperate for them to eat and they will, you know, they will go to five different stores to try and find the particular brand of the type of food that they eat just so that they know they've got something in. Um, And I might think about a detailed food diary. And also I would always do a bit of a screen for anxiety and depression and do some, some measures on that
0: from the history as well as examination, what are some warning signs and symptoms of ARFID that we as medical students or as future doctors might look out for?
1: So I guess it's similar to someone with anorexia. It would be poor growth or or low weight, their limited diet. Um, And I'd also be looking at the impacts of their eating on their social development too. So are they only eating in certain places? Are they not going out with friends or doing things because eating in different settings is stressful or that they only like certain types of food and they can't get them. So they tend to not go out.
0: Now we can move on to treatment and management. So what is the general pathway to getting help for these patients?
1: Mm, it's a good question. And I wish I had a good answer. <laughs> um, there's There aren't many services available um, publicly or privately for young people or anyone with AFID, probably because it is um, so new in in the DSM, so newly defined. Uh, In our clinic, they're often referred by a GP or a paediatrician due to concerns about nutrition, weight or height. Um, So there's been a big loss in weight or they're just not growing as we'd expect them to. And then... You can see some private people. So some people see them through NDIS, but it is very difficult to find people who know a lot about ARFID and specialise in it. So sometimes you'll see people through NDIS seeing a speech pathologist or an AT or a psychologist at the children's hospital um, in adolescent medicine if they are an adolescent and they're either underweight or dropping their height centiles they could be seen through the eating disorder clinic there where they would get to see a dietitian a pediatrician a psychiatrist and a mental health clinician um, as required and then we also have a very small capacity in what's called the psychology service who sees outpatients of the hospital so kids with comorbid medical conditions who might have comorbid aphid and we could see them there but It's about it. We really need to advocate and find better pathways. One of the complicating factors is that in the private model, um, you can get, I think, 40 psychology sessions for anorexia or bulimia, but it doesn't apply to ARFID at this point because uh, the way that you qualify to get those 40 sessions is to score up on a certain measure called the EDE, and the EDE doesn't have an ARFID component at the moment.
0: Mm, so they really need to expand yeah, its own un- criteria.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is work underway to add an ARFID module to the EDE, but at the moment, um, you know, private psychologists can't provide 40 sessions of eating disorder sessions for someone with ARFID. Mm.
0: And like the other eating disorders, it sounds like a whole multidisciplinary team is really required to be involved in someone's recovery.
1: Yeah, and I think it's because there's such variation in how they may present. It may not be the same multidisciplinary team for every person, so it would really depend on the challenges or what's underlying the food the eating restriction.
0: And in terms of treatment, I know for something like anorexia nervosa in adolescents, family therapy is considered as gold standard treatment. What about in ARFID? What does that entail in mm. perhaps the short, medium, and long term?
1: So again because it's relatively newly defined, we don't have an established gold standard treatment at the moment. Uh, There are a number of research groups, uh, you know, working on this furiously to try and figure out what is the best combination of treatments for this population. And a lot of that is happening in in the pediatric space. So in in young people, but I think it's just important to also remember that there could be adults with ARFID too, um, although it's going to be presenting and um, younger populations so i think so i actually think that there's probably more overlap than division in all of the different groups that are researching this at the moment and it seems to be some form of combination of like the family based treatment principles that we use for anorexia and bulimia but that this group also needs something a little bit more because there's something else underlying the eating problem so there's some sort of anxiety or fear or sensory issue um so usually it's coupled with with CBT techniques as well, to try and address what's driving the eating problem.
0: And before you mentioned something about family dynamics and how different parents may approach their children's eating disorder differently, how do you manage, I guess, the different personalities?
1: (laughs) That's where (laughs) our skill comes in, Um, (laughs) in trying to understand that. So I think when we talk about family-based treatment for anorexia or bulimia, it's Um, we are getting the family to do the treatment, but it's not like family therapy in terms of if, I don't know if you are familiar with the Bouvary Centre, say, that does family. Okay, so they do family therapy and they kind of look at family dynamics and how are you communicating and what's said and what's unsaid and that kind of thing to try and improve relationships. Mm -hmm. That's not what you do when you're treating anorexia or bulimia. So what it is, is you're skilling up parents to feed their child and do what their child needs to get well. Um, So it's very behavioral in many ways, you know, in terms of, and you're giving the parents the responsibility to kind of do that. So there is a similar approach with ARFID that we need to skill up parents to, to make sure that their children are getting the nutrition they need. So helping parents to have clear expectations about what's needed, learn how to manage resistance and learn how to manage distress. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, for sure. It's a psychoeducation's key in this area. Yeah,
1: it's psychoeducation, but it's a bit more than that as well Mm -hmm. because you would actually go into strategies and you may be doing family meals with the parents where you get them to experiment with responding in different ways and seeing how that kind of changes the eating behaviour and getting the parents to notice how is their child responding to them when they do this versus when they do that.
0: And coming off that topic of parents' involvement in the recovery of these patients, what resources can help families of patients with ARFID?
1: Um, Again, (laughs) there's not a whole heap I can direct you to. So the Raising Children's Network has a fact sheet there that they might want to read, but there's not a heap else. Actually, there is one. Um, So there's a group from Harvard Medical School or Harvard University Harvard University I think called CBTAR and they've just published a manual for families I mean it is heavily based on the treatment approach that they are trialing it's very well informed it may end up being the gold standard one and there is also they've also got a a treatment handbook too for clinicians that could be helpful.
0: And in terms of what advice you would give parents is there something you generally go to?
1: So it would be around that avoidance and that the more that they avoid something, the harder it's going to be for them to do it and the more feared that's going to be. If if you're fearful of spiders and you never go near a spider and you see a teeny tiny little spider and you make someone else deal with it and then you feel much better and you feel really relieved, it's like, oh, that was good that I avoided that because that made me feel better. Um, yeah. and so the next time you see a spider, it's going to be just as frightening. So the same thing will happen with food. We would also talk to them about, how many repeated exposures you need to to a new taste uh, in order for it to stop being novel. So usually for most of us, we will need a few tastes of something new before we no longer experience it as novel and we can make a decision about whether we like it or not. So, for example, I don't know about you, but the first time I tried coffee, it was disgusting. Mm -hmm. Now I can't get enough of it. Um, So the more I've tried it, the more you struggle and it's kind of gradually got stronger and stronger. But if I just went off my first kind of taste of it, I would never have drunk it again. So that we need to continue presenting the same foods again and again, like even if it is rejected the first time and it's not, it doesn't mean that you should give up on it.
0: So um, are there principles to this therapy similar to graded exposure for patients with obsessive compulsive disorder? Yeah, so it's all
1: CBT. Um, yeah. yeah. so it's coming off the same kind of theoretical base. Yeah. So like, like you want to, if someone's got OCD, you want them to stop engaging in that behavior um, and tolerate it. You know, you've got exposure and response prevention. So yeah, it's similar. So you want to expose them to the food and then stop their response, which is to avoid. (laughs) So you want to prevent that response from occurring and get them to kind of eat it. Um, And it might be a kind of a graded exposure technique that you'd use for that.
0: Lastly, I just wanted to touch on quickly about medical outcomes or clinical trajectories in these patients. Are the health consequences of ARFID similar to other eating disorders?
1: Yeah, they can be. So there can definitely be issues with height and with weight. So they could be underweight and not growing. So because people with ARFID are likely to have a longer duration of illness, you might find that the growth stunning happens earlier. And then you guys would probably be in a better position to understand the impacts of that happening earlier or later in your development. But it's not just limited to, unlike say anorexia, it's not just about height and weight there are other things too so there are cases of people going blind or having other kind of systems in their body failing because they haven't got the right nutrition they need because they've eaten such a restricted range of foods for so long and there are other kind of issues as well it can really be disruptive to their social development as well like if you can't eat out it's hard to go through adolescence right if you can't eat with your peers or eat in different situations or have some level of flexibility it impacts your life in many ways
0: and what is recovery like for patients? So I think it's it's
1: highly variable. Um, again, because there's so much variability in the way it presents. So the young people who have been consistently underweight throughout their whole life, we're probably not going to get them up to the 50th centile for weight. You know, they're probably going to be a bit underweight. So getting them to kind of gain some weight, but not kind of expecting them to kind of get to normal, um, it would be seen as a good treatment outcome in again, I don't have research to back this up because we just don't have it yet. Mm -hmm. When there's like a a good history of eating you know like they've gone through their life they've been eating pretty well and then there was this anaphylactic event and then they became really fearful of eating and they stopped eating i find that usually easier to treat because i've got a normal baseline to kind of go back to and they've had like lots of experiences that they can draw on where food has been safe then we're trying to get them back there whereas if i'm working with someone who at birth had complex cardiac issues and then was you know peg fed for like years and then started to eat and then the family like they've never had a normal experience of eating and they've had a terrible kind of medical history and the families had to protect them and be so precious with them to keep them alive then trying to push them kind of to eat and be challenged with their eating is much more difficult and I find that's a bit of a slower longer road
0: yeah, of course. That sounds very tricky to manage if it's such a long standing issue from birth.
1: Yeah. And if there's complex, like if there's ASD as well, there's other things going on for them too <laughs> that we kind of need to take into consideration. But a well resourced family and mm-hmm. parents who are insightful and have a world of patience can do remarkable things, very remarkable things, even when their child has had a complex history
0: it's good that we ended on a hopeful note. Thank you so much for your time and for lending your expertise to this episode. I know that I gained a lot of insight into Arthur, and I hope our listeners did as well. So once again, thank you, Claire, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Freudian Slip and to our lovely guest, Dr. Claire Burden. Our gratitude to Joseph McDade for the theme song. We'll see you next time.